It's good to be with you. My name's Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit. Thanks so much for being here. Um, happy birthday, by the way. Our church turns six tomorrow. Um, yeah, thank you. We're very excited about that as well. So uh, January 16th, 2011, our church gathered together in our living room for the very first time. This is what it actually looked like uh, here as well. Um, so it's kind of crazy now. I feel like we have almost as many services as we did people at that original gathering, or at least it feels like that a lot of times. And um, yeah, God's been very kind and very gracious to us. And you know, when we first started, I remember when we hit like two and three, I just kind of like made a note to myself that we had celebrated another birthday. But I think every year that we do uh, life and ministry here in Denver, uh, the more I just sort of authentically believe that our existence, um, and not just that we've survived as a church, but really thrived in a lot of ways, um, is the kindness of God, is the grace of God. And I feel like we would almost be uh, disobedient if we just didn't give thanks and say, um, isn't it amazing that God gave us another year of life? And, uh, you know, I also just want to say thank you because a lot of you have been here for many years and it's been very hard and kind of the, um, the, the fantasies of church planting very quickly were, were uh, interrupted by the realities of what it's like to do life in an urban context like our own where it's very, very hard. Um, and you've been committed against all odds and a lot of you are new here. And I just want to say to those of you who are new, um, it might be easy to like look at that picture and be like, man, I wasn't there. I'm kind of on the outside or I can't really make a difference here. And I would just say, I, I think we're just getting started. Um, this is not the end for us. This is only the beginning. And God in his grace has been sort of laying a foundation uh, for us to continue to do, like we asked from the very beginning, to do abundantly more than, God, uh, than we could ever ask uh, or imagine. So if you're new around here, we look forward to you being a part of that. Not just for the next six years, next six generations. I'll be dead by then, um, but we'll hand it off to somebody else, and they'll probably do a better job than me anyway. So um, there's some really great things in our uh, future. Um, I haven't preached for a while, so I thought I'd catch you up on some of the big developments in my own life. Um, hope you guys had a good Christmas, a good New Year's. Probably the most significant development over the last six-ish weeks of my life is uh, we sold our Subaru. Uh, or Subi, as I know, I know, uh, or Subi. My daughter affectionately called it Subi. And uh, we bought a minivan because our family's growing. So I stand before you, half the Coloradan and uh, half the man, uh, as I was, I was before. I actually love our minivan now. I think only real men drive minivans. And uh, I, lo- I love our minivan. Um, and the Subi was, was having some issues, and I'm not very handy. And there was just like, if we're going to keep that car, it was going to have to require a whole lot of work. And uh, one of the things that required a lot of work was the battery was perpetually dying, which I know, I, I know I'm not handy, but I also do know you don't have to sell your car if your battery s- stops working, okay? I'm not an idiot. Um, so just in case you're wondering that, no. Um, but it was perpetually breaking down. We were going to get a new one. And uh, so we actually got to the point as a family where we would have to drive around with a portable external battery wherever we went. And so, uh, you know, we'd go and run errands. We'd go to the mall. we go to Cherry Creek Mall. You go in, and you get some shopping done, and you get a soft pretzel, and you come back out, and the battery is dead. And at first, it was like a very uh, inconvenient thing to have happen. At first, it was very much like, um, you know, you, you want to be able to just get in your car and drive. But as somebody who's not particularly handy, it actually became like a very enjoyable experience for me because it was like, don't worry about it. I've got this. Like, you know, like to be able to say that to your wife and daughter again and again and again, like I felt like a hero. And so I almost looked forward to the car breaking down so that uh, I could be like, you guys just stay in the car. I got this taken care of. Don't worry. You can watch. You can admire. You can grow in love for me. But, uh, you know, I've got this as we go through this. And I don't know, I think that's like a feeling that a lot of us really love and resonate with. We, we kind of love being heroes. We love saying like, I got this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to save this. And uh, I think just sort of full transparency, uh, that's the way historically 
uh, I've thought about this series. Uh, you know, it's interesting in Denver, uh, a lot of churches around the U.S., they grow in attendance around Christmas. Not in Denver. We, we just wonder if we're going to survive because uh, a lot of you are not from here. Uh, a lot of you go back to where you're from. The churches where you're from grow. Uh, we die as a consequence. Uh, and, you know, and it's just like things are thrown off. Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. A lot of you go back to where it is that you're from. You have uh, well-meaning family members who put an inordinate amount of pressure on you for you to move back to where you're from, and they're selling you and being like, man, you could own like a 10-bedroom house for like what that plot of land that's the size of the stage in downtown Denver costs. Why don't you move back? It's safer. It's easier. It's cheaper. And you're like, maybe it is a good idea. And then my job is to tell you, no, that's a stupid idea. That's a really bad idea. Don't do that. Like live for something more than that. And I don't know. I've always felt that pressure. Like we get back here in January and we kind of get back into the swing of things. And it's my job to almost be like, hey, don't worry about it. I got this thing. I'm going to jumpstart this thing uh, back to life. Um, I've really changed in my thinking of that. Um, I feel like that gives me a, a place of responsibility, a place of influence that uh, nobody other than Jesus is supposed to take. Um, you know, for me, I, I tend to a lot of times default towards uh, givenness and capacity and entrepreneurial aptitude and ability to communicate and strategy. And I don't think those things are intrinsically evil. I, I just... I'm increasingly moving my life and my ministry to be like, I don't want to lead with those things. Um, you know, I was reading, Eugene Peterson wrote a book called The Pastor. Eugene Peterson did the message translation of the Bible, and he, did a, he wrote a memoir called The Pastor. And he re- I read something he read recently that really, it like kind of challenged me to my core. He said, the pastor is not primarily someone who makes things happen, but rather is a person who pays attention and calls attention to what's going on right now in the kingdom of God. Um, and that was, that's not the way I've always thought. Um, and I'm shifting to kind of think in this particular way to say, again, it's not that sort of strategy and planning is bad, but historically, I've started this series by telling us as a church, here's where we're going, here's what we're going to do, let's get on board, kind of get you excited and jumpstart this thing, and uh, I feel like it's inappropriate for me to start a new year that way, Uh, and so here's what I'm going to do. All I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about what it is that God has done, uh, I'm not going to tell you what to do. We'll get there. Again, it's not bad. That's not all the series. But I'm going to talk to you about what it is that God has done. And I want to push you. I like want to push you with every part of who I am to like challenge you. So you look forward to this next year. And as a lot of you are evaluating your lives. And a lot of you are new to church. You're back in church because you just skied. And you're like, man, what happened? It's 2017. What? Like, what went on? It's like, I want to push you to just like, ask really significant questions that are so easy to distract yourselves from asking here in Denver. Like, what if you really believe the God of the Bible is real? Like, what if you really believe that he's for you? Like, what if you really believe that he is pursuing you and fighting for your joy even more than you're fighting for your joy? Like, how would that shape your vision of your life and what it is that you're going to do in this coming year and the many coming years as well? And so, that's all I'm going to lead with. Um, yeah. The way I'm going to do this uh, is I'm going to point you to sort of the, uh, a part of the story of Peter uh, that we miss when we work through Mark. So if you're with us at all, last year we finished two years in the gospel according to Mark, and a lot of it is telling the story of Peter because Peter is the source material for a lot of Mark. Um, but we miss this sort of like epilogue. Uh, it's not the end, but it's kind of a, an in-the-between uh, story that we only get in John. We don't get it in... Uh, uh, Mark as well. And I, I love this story. For months, I kind of like, 
I don't know, as we were teaching through Mark, I was like, I really want our church to see this story because I feel like it's such a heart of the gospel story. Uh, and I was like, how do I work this in with Mark? And it's like, well, I cheated. I'm going to put it in United and uh, make it work. And uh, yeah, like, I hope you know this. Like, stories of grace, uh, the grace of God in people's lives like Peter, um, you know, the New Testament says they're not meant to sort of entertain you or be a spectacle to you like a movie. They're meant to be a pattern of God's grace in his people, in your life as well. This is the way that God works in people's lives. And so I'm excited to sort of walk through this uh, with you as well. So we're just going to see a couple of things uh, as we walk through this, and we'll just talk about what it is that God has done. Um, the first thing we're going to see in this story, if you want to look with me at John 21, starting in verse 1, uh, we're going to see that Jesus pursues us even when he sees the worst in us. Okay, so one of the most foundational, beautiful aspects of the gospel is that Jesus pursues us even when he sees the worst in us. So starting in verse one, uh, after this, now that is the ultimate understatement because we're at the very end of a book. And so this is after Jesus lived a perfect life. It's after he's died in the place for sinners. It's after he's reconciled, or after he's resurrected uh, victorious over the greatest enemies of humanity like Satan, sin, death, and hell. And also important for this context is after this, uh, is also after Peter, who was supposed to be kind of the chief disciple, the guy who was most in charge, uh, totally abandoning Jesus. And not just abandoning Jesus, but abandoning Jesus after like 15 minutes prior, telling Jesus, even if it kills me, I'm with you to the very end. And then this little girl is like, do you know Jesus? He's like, I've never heard of the guy. And Jesus gets killed. So that's, that's some of the context of what's going on here. All right? After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. The Sea of Tiberias was just the uh, Roman term for the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. Uh, but that night they caught nothing. Now, what's important, if you look again, uh, look at verse 3, where uh, Peter says, I am going fishing. What's important is Bible scholars kind of universally believe that there's more implied in that statement than Peter just being like, I have a rumbly in my tumbly, and uh, I'm going to go get something to eat, okay? Uh, everything in the Bible is purposeful. John, even just right before this, said we could have told you a lot of other things about Jesus' life. We're telling you about the most important stuff. So why would, why would we be told this little detail? Here's the reason why. If you remember, Peter was a professional fisherman. He was a professional fisherman, and that was what Jesus called him out of to go and like, live this life of ministry. And so what scholars believe is here's Peter. When he says, I'm going fishing, it's more than just like, I'm hungry. It's more like, I blew it. Like, I had this chance, um, and I screwed it up, you know? Like, and I feel so much shame. I feel so much guilt. I feel just, like, such damaged goods. My shot is over, um, and I'm going to go back to my old way of life. And the other disciples are like, okay, uh, we'll go and do that as well. Now, verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet his disciples did not know it was Jesus. You, you see this a lot in kind of post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. Uh, which again, like, let's not let this be a cold study of the Bible. This is real life. It happened in real history. So just imagine the way this must have gone down, where, you know, kind of like, speaking of cars, when your car breaks down, and, uh, you know, you have, like, the hood popped up, and there's, like, smoke coming out of the hood, and then somebody sort of walks by, and they look at you, and they're like, car breakdown? Like, <laughs> no, I just love standing here with my car. Like, I prefer to look at my car, not drive my car. Like, yes, my car broke down. Thanks. And they, like, walk on, like, yep, well, good luck with that, and they continue on. It kind of feels like Jesus is doing that, right? Like, here's these professional fishermen who have been fishing. They catch nothing, and there's this random guy on the, the, uh, the uh, shore who's like, hey, did you guys catch any fish? And they're like, no, we didn't. 
Like, thanks for that. Um, <laughs> look at Jesus in verse 6. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now look at verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that was referring to John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, why does all of a sudden like light bulb go off for John in verse 7 that he all of a sudden knows like, oh, that's Jesus. Well, here's the thing. is like when, when you haven't seen somebody for a while, particularly if it's somebody that you know really well and you really love, there's kind of a, a couple of ways to let that person know that you've arrived. So I think about this with my daughter. My daughter uh, a lot of times is asleep when I leave for work. Uh, and so on most work days, the first time I'm seeing her is around 5.30 in the, uh, uh, the evening. And so I'll show up, and the majority of the time, I'm just kind of too tired to do anything other than like, hey, I'm home. And, you know, she's starting to already get to an age where sometimes she'll just be like playing with something or coloring something. She'll be like, oh, hey, Dad. And like, I'm like, okay, well, you know, I might die of sadness, but hey to you as well. Um, <laughs> So, so we're, yeah, you know, it's just part of your kids growing up. Um, but here's what I've done to sort of counteract this a little bit is uh, I've gotten like more playful when I get home. And so if I, if I kind of have the energy and I think to do it, um, I'll sort of sneak in the house where, where she doesn't know that I'm in. And then um, when we play hide and seek, uh, I make this noise that like only I make and she knows that it's me. It's like, boop. I, like, I know it's weird, but it's just like what I, it's just what you do when you're a parent. And uh, I'll sneak into the house and she'll be playing and I'll kind of like spy and look at her, and I'll be like, boop, and she'll be like, you know, she'll like look up, like, like a dog that's heard a whistle or something like that, and all of a sudden like start looking around for me, and then she'll like lock eyes with me, and she'll be super pumped, and she'll just come running, and I'm like, yes, like dad level 10 right there. That was, that was a great, great uh, move in there. Um, that's what Jesus is doing here in this moment. It's like this astoundingly uh, loving playful way of kind of announcing that it's him, right? Because like, why does John put this together? Because he's done life with Jesus and he's like, man, I know who the person is who can stand off on the shore of a sea and look into dark waters and be like, hey, no, no, there's no fish over there. There's fish right there. Yeah, yeah, right there, like from a distance. Like who else does that? And they're like, we know who does it. Just one guy, Jesus, that's Jesus. And they come running. Actually, Peter comes swimming. He is so pumped that it is Jesus. Look at this. He like jumps out of the boat and starts swimming to Jesus in verse uh, uh, seven right there. Um, When Simon heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. I mean, just try to picture that image of these dignified Jewish men working their profession and him just being like, see you, I'm out of here. He just starts swimming to shore because he's so excited to get to Jesus. In fact, what I also love about it is just the reality of verse eight, where he leaves the other disciples behind to like bring in all the fish. <laughs> you know, it's just like funny to me for them to think like, I know you're excited, but there's a lot of fish that we got to get in here as well. So look at them. They're like lagging behind in verse eight. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Now, what do we do with this? Um, in all of this, there's sort of a repetition of a theme that we talk a lot about as a church that is so important for us to get. And the reason we repeat it is because it's so uh, important for you to get. Here's the thing, is that most people, most people, when they see the worst in us, they abandon us. Most people, when we fail to perpetuate sort of this projected image of ourselves that's actually far better than what exists in reality, when we fail to keep the lid on kind of the mistakes that we've made in our past or things that have happened to us that might make people think different about us, as soon as sort of a a glimpse of that is given to people around us, we are abandoned. 
And yet, here's where Jesus loves you the way that nobody else will love you, where Jesus sees the worst in Peter, and he doesn't abandon Peter, but pursues Peter in like this loving, playful, astoundingly grace-filled way. Right? I mean, because like Jesus could have even like gotten back to Peter and been on the shore. I mean, think about what the other alternatives were, particularly after they like screwed up everything. I mean, he could have been on the shore and been like, hey, you idiots, I'm alive. And boy, are you in trouble. You know, like, I got a lot of problems with you guys. Like, come on, come on, come on. And they're like, oh, we don't want to go to the shore. We don't want to, you know, they're like trying to get more into the middle of the, sh- the, 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 uh, the sea. And like, we don't want to, but, but like, man, it's like, what grace that Peter sees Jesus and he comes swimming. A lot of you, like, this is where it's very easy to sort of impose your experiences with people on God and assume God is the same as other people because a lot of you have been abandoned. I think a lot of us carry deep fears and pains from abandonment. And, and a lot of times it's because we messed up. A lot of times man, in culture today, it's through no fault of your own. A lot of you grew up in homes where a parent physically or emotionally abandoned you from a very, very young age. And even though you couldn't talk when it happened, or even if you've never even met, I mean, I mean, people all the time who haven't even met their biological father. And there's a sort of haunting thing of like, was there something wrong with me that led to this happening? A lot of you, you know, we joke all the time that Denver's the one place that, you know, the one thing people are committed to is not being committed to anything. And that applies to relationships here in this city, where a lot of you have had friends here in the city that moved to the city that said they were committed to this city and then things got hard or there was like a little bit of a financially better alternative somewhere else and like, boom, they're gone. You're like, man, I thought we were like doing life together. I just think particularly like for those of you ladies, I'm not trying to sort of, I mean, I guess I am trying to speak specifically to you. Um, But it's just like we exist in this weird culture where men are highly non-committal and they'll like break up with you for the most stupid of stuff. And I feel like probably more entertaining than me finishing the sermon would be some of you coming up and being like, yeah, he didn't like the scent of my deodorant. And then we like ended it. And it was like, what happened? Um, all of that is a reflection of the fact that like we just perpetually face abandonment. And, and, and to take it to a different level, a lot of you carry secrets. A lot of you made mistakes. A lot of you had things uh, that you've done or have happened to you as well. Because the city is a concentration of brokenness where you just think, like you even think of this about me right now. Like if, if he knew what I did when I went home for Christmas and got around my old friends, he wouldn't even want me in this room right now. You just sort of assume that about me. I don't think that. And the reason I don't think that is because I'm intrinsically good, but because I follow Jesus and Jesus shapes the way that I think about people more than the way that people make me think about people. And Jesus Christ in this astoundingly countercultural way, he loves you in a way that nobody else will love you and that he sees the worst in you and he doesn't run away from you, but instead runs towards you to reconcile a relationship with you. And it's like nobody else will treat you this way. And as a consequence, as a consequence, you should really look at the example of Peter and come running, swimming, jogging, biking, whatever that layback recumbent bicycle thing is, doing thing that people do around Denver. I just learned about new sports in our city. I don't even know they existed. Whatever it is, to get to Jesus as quickly as possible, no matter what. It even means you lose in dignity, like Peter lost dignity, whether it means you lose in money, whether it means you lose in safety or security or whatever it is, nobody else will love you like this. And you should come running.
Now, what's astounding is what happens next, because it doesn't stop there. Um, I love what happens next. Um, so Jesus uh, pursues us, even though he sees the worst in us. And then what happens next is even more beautiful, I think, where Jesus, he, he brings out our worst for the sake of bringing out our best. All right, Jesus brings out our uh, worst in order to bring out our best. Now, I won't uh, work verse by verse through 9 through 14. What happens in 9 through 14 is what I'll call a very awkward family meal. Um, like, so picture in your mind, like, have you ever had like a, you know, we just came out of the holidays. So probably some of you were at family meals where there was like a blow up. And then all of a sudden you had to like eat together 10 minutes later. And then like nobody wanted to talk about it. And it was like, are we going to talk about this? Are we not going to talk about this? That's kind of what verses 9 through 14 is. It's like, are we going to talk about how we all abandon Jesus? Does he know that we all abandon him? Are we going to talk about the fact that Peter like three times was like, I don't even know the guy. And, uh, you know, so they just eat munching on fish uh, and just like, this is awkward. And then uh, look at verse 15. We see that Jesus does know. And uh, let me read, kind of read verse 15 uh, and beyond for you. And then we'll loop back. And I'll tell you kind of like, what in the world is it that's going on here? When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now look at this response. This is where like, I, I always misunderstood what was going on here until I noticed this one little word. Peter was grieved. All right, underline that, circle that. Uh, if you borrowed one of our Bibles, circle it and then take that Bible home with you. Um, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, what in the world is going on here? Jesus is doing a couple of things to Peter that he does in our own lives as well. The first thing we're seeing is Jesus is cutting Peter in order to expose the worst in Peter, okay? Jesus is cutting Peter in order to expose the worst in Peter. Now, again, like I said, uh, this is, a, this is a fairly famous scene. And the problem with famous scenes in the Bible is like a lot of times we think things happen that didn't actually happen until we actually read what happens. And, um, you know, I kind of always read this scene as like Jesus or uh, Peter was like perturbed. He was like frustrated. He was annoyed, right? Like, will you stop asking me the same question? We have a lot of other things to talk about. But it didn't say annoyed, right? What word is used? He was grieved. Like this soul level sorrow that Jesus would ask him this question. Now, why is he grieved? Well, does this scene remind you of anything else? Like, Jesus takes Peter in front of a fire, in front of the other disciples, and asks him three particular times, what is it that you think about me? Does that remind you of anything else? Like, hours prior to this, I mean days, but hours prior to this, the exact same thing happened. And this is the most shame-filled, despair-causing moment in the life of Peter that makes him believe that he's damaged goods and can never be used again. And Jesus, in some ways very loving, but in other ways very brutally, is walking him through, is reenacting the most painful moment in Peter's life. Why? To cut him. Why? Not to murder him. Okay, he's not cutting him like a murder. This is not Friday the 13th, like, wah, 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 wah. like Jesus is like, man, I'm gonna make you... Think about what it is that you've done. Why? He's cutting him not like a murderer, but instead like a surgeon to open up 
the most disgusting parts of who he is, the most dangerous parts of who he is, and much like a doctor removes a tumor, to remove a self-righteousness, a belief that he could save himself that existed within Peter, and to say, this failed you, and you should put this to death, or else it'll put you to death. Right? Like, Why would Jesus reenact this scene for Peter? I mean, he's showing him the failure of his false belief. If you remember right before kind of Peter fails the first time, um, Jesus says to Peter, he gives him a warning even. He's like, you're going to abandon me. Like, you're going to abandon me. And what does Peter say? Does he say, like, you're God. You know everything. What can I do to not have this happen? Because you're right. You're probably right about me. What does he say? No, he doesn't say that. He actually says, even though they all fall away, I will not. Which is kind of like a jerky statement because the other guys are even in the room when he says that. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I know they're weak. I know they're stupid. I know they're cowards. I know they'll run in the other direction, but not me. You don't, like, you're wrong about me, Jesus. Like, there's a goodness in me you don't even realize about. And like, I'm good. I'm strong. I'm religious. I'm obedient. I'm disciplined. I'm going to make, I'm going to be faithful to the very end. And boom, 15 minutes later, he is running away from a little girl. Why is Jesus reenacting this? It's to show Peter, the bankruptcy of what he thought was going to save him. Peter, you are not this intrinsically good, intrinsically righteous, intrinsically well put together. Actualize your potential and you'll be fine. You'll be able to save yourself. You're the opposite of that. You're more broken than you ever realized. And you need someone or something outside of you and above you to step in and to save you and heal you. And that's exactly what I've come to do. Here's where this gets hard, is this is what God does a lot of times in our lives, okay? And I think there's a couple of things that we're working against here. One, uh, you know, there's, there's American religion and there's the gospel, and those are two very different things. An American religion that's sort of like, because Christianity is the predominant religion that people adhere to in our country, and we kind of like take principles of that without sort of filtering it through the biblical gospel, there's kind of two false beliefs that make what's happening here really, really hard. The first is the belief that, like, God doesn't really desire to change you whatsoever. He just wants you to kind of, like, it's not that big of a deal that things are jacked up about you. There's, like, an entire religion that's built on that in public culture that's kind of portrayed as, like, that's the most loving thing God can do, and it's not. If there's something that's hurting you, if there's something that's hurting you and the people around you, the most loving thing to do is to say, ah, eh, don't worry about it. That's not love. That is enablement, and God loves you more than that. Okay, like, your friend in college who didn't want to rattle the boat will, will, will enable you, okay? But God is not like a, he's not like a, a gold retriever who just wants to be your buddy and is just like wagging his tail because you just kind of like happen to glimpse in his direction. He wants to change you for his glory and for your joy. So that's the first challenge of this. The second challenge is God isn't sort of just portrayed as a cosmic golden retriever, but he's also portrayed as a cosmic Santa Claus that if he's not giving you exactly what you want, when you want, that he's abandoned you and he might not even exist, and so when something like this happens in your life, so I'm thinking particularly for those of you over the last year or in the coming year, lost something that was very, very precious to you. And I'm not trying to give a blanket statement for all suffering everywhere. That would be stupid. But I'm just saying in some particular cases, some of you over this last year experienced really, really hard things. And God changed maybe what you wanted for your life. God changed, you know, you were in a relationship you thought was just like the best thing in the world and he cheated on you. 
And it's easy for you, when life isn't going the way you want it to, to believe that God has abandoned you. But that is not what's going on here. He's actually more near than ever before. And sometimes he does cut you, but not to murder you, but to save you. And usually to save you from yourself. It's like, God is not loving if he stands from a distance and you date somebody that's not good for you and you believe, like, this is my missing puzzle piece. You know, like, this is, I know I have problems, but this is the person that will make life worth living. Like, marry somebody that you have that expectation of. See how it goes. <laughs> Ask somebody who's married with that expectation and be like, do you still have it? <laughs> it's like, the most loving thing for God to do. I don't know, like some of you, it's just, we look at everything other than God to save us. It's like, here's this relationship, here's this job. I'm gonna have a kid. I know we're having trouble in our marriage, but we're gonna have a kid and that's gonna make everything better. And it's like, why did you think that? Like, like, did you think they were gonna give you date nights? Did you think that they were gonna watch themselves? Did you think that they were gonna like put on little glasses and like a professor cross their legs and ask you questions about like, why is marriage so hard? Like, no, they're, they're like tyrants. They're crazy. I mean, I love them, but like, they don't make things easier. They make things harder. And in all of these things, it's easy for you to believe that God has abandoned you and he's not abandoned you. He is near you and he's changing you and he's transforming you into the type of man or woman he has designed you to be for his glory and for your joy as well. Now, he doesn't stop there, okay? Which is really good news also because I think a lot of times kind of Christianity is portrayed as this thing where it's like, you're terrible. Think about that for a while. All right, let's go home. Are you encouraged? Let's, uh, so that's not where the gospel stops. It's a significant part of the gospel. But here's what's really amazing is that Jesus doesn't just cut Peter to expose the worst in Peter, but he heals Peter so that he might profoundly use Peter. All right, I'm going to say this again. This is what God does in our lives. He'll cut us to bring out the worst in us so that he might heal the worst in us so that he might profoundly use us. And that's what we see happen kind of at the back part of this story as well. Um, look at this verse. Uh, well, before verse 18, you know, let me sum up a little bit of what it is that's been going on uh, up to this point. If you notice, Jesus asks him these questions, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? Three times, Peter's getting grieved. But what's really interesting also is the degree to which Jesus follows up by giving Peter a responsibility. Isn't that interesting? Um, so he's not just like, you're done here. He's like, do you love me? Okay, here's a responsibility, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes. Okay, tin my sheep. It's over and over and over again. So there's this element of Jesus kind of being like, I trust you, Peter. This isn't over. You're not done. You're not damaged goods. We're, we're just getting started here. This isn't the end. It's the beginning. Uh, but look at this. This really becomes tangible in verse 18, where Jesus says to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, he used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands uh, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then John tells us, like, what in the world does that mean? Uh, this, he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, I understand for us, that's a little bit of an off-putting statement um, in terms of just, like, Jesus telling Peter that he's going to die, and he's going to die in a fairly painful way. Um, but to quote from the great philosopher William Wallace, uh, the fictional William Wallace from Braveheart, not the historical uh, guy, but... You know, he says, you know, every man dies, not every man truly lives. And I know that's very corny and very overused, but it's very applicable to what's going on here because it's saying 
uh, what Jesus is saying to Peter is like, by the type of death that you're going to have, it's a reflection of the type of life that I'm going to produce within you. Because what we know um, from church history is Peter dies, um, and what we're fairly certain of is that Peter's not only killed, um, but Peter is killed in such a way uh, that he's crucified. And when he's crucified, he actually doesn't sort of run away or complain or say, I don't want to do this. Uh, But actually, the one request he makes as he's being crucified is that he would be crucified upside down because he didn't believe that he was worthy of being killed in the same way as his Lord. And the question, of course, is like, how in the world does the Peter before the cross, uh, who's running away from a little girl, become the Peter after the cross? How does that happen? Like, like, if you look at it on a timeline, like, what happens right here for the Peter before the cross, who's filled with cowardice, become the Peter after the cross, who's filled with such courage that he, like, the, it's such an impact, not just courage, but such success, such influence, such that the only response of his opponents is to murder him. What happens? Well, it's actually not very, like, it's actually a very obvious question. What happens to the Peter before the cross and after the cross? The cross. That's what happens, right? There's like this moment for Peter where it's like all of a sudden the light bulb goes off and this like astounding, universal, transformative love of God spills into his heart where here is God who fully sees him for who he is, full vulnerability, full transparency, no secrets, no hiding, no projecting an image of yourself that's like way better than what exists in reality. Like God sees him, knows him for who he really is and God doesn't abandon him but dies for him to heal him. And not only that, but he resurrects three days later, victorious over Satan, sin, death, and hell. And the same spirit that resurrected Jesus from the grave comes to live inside Peter. It is a consequence, empowers Peter to do what only God could do in his life and actually to transform him into the kind of man that he claimed to be way before and wasn't as soon as things got hard. And that, like, that is the type of love that changes us. You know, I feel like that's a really popular thing to say in culture, like, we're all looking, the love changes us, and like, you know, sci-fi teenage romance novels are built on this, like, if somebody would just fully know me, and still love me, and accept me, I'll be filled with joy, and I think there's actually, like, that's tapping into a gospel longing within us, but only God is the one who treats us that way. Man, I was thinking about this in my own life, um, just like, the, the transformative power of this type of love, and um, I feel like, you know, whenever we hit a birthday as a church, you know, you naturally grow a little bit self-reflective. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of landmark moments in my life throughout this journey. I told a story in the morning. I wasn't sure if I was going to, and I cried. I think I'm going to cry again because... Um, and I remember, uh, so about seven years ago, we were starting to get, get ready to start this church. And it was kind of this weird circumstance. I won't go into all the details. But basically, uh, we were living in Raleigh, North Carolina, and this church was preparing us, and it was a great church. And um, a pastor who wasn't at that church, but at another church in the city who, who was kind of influential, kind of spent like an hour with me um, and then told me that he didn't think I was gifted enough to start a church in Denver. Um, which I know seems like a little bit ridiculous, but like especially when you're young, um, inexperienced, and you don't know if it's going to work out or not, uh, is a pretty devastating thing to have somebody say to you. And it, and it was like, not only that, but it was like, 
the reasons why were like astoundingly personal. Um, and it was like really hard, you know? It was really, really hard um, just because it's like, well, maybe he's right. And um, I remember even, you know, when somebody has influence, you're a little bit scared of them. And, uh, and I remember even just being really scared uh, that our ascending church um, you know, like, that might come up. He might, like, say something to them, and then they pull the plug, and should I just pull the plug before they pull the plug to, like, you know, I've been praying about this, and I think, you know, like, to save some element of faith, and, um, and it was just a really, really hard time, and I remember just coming to a place where it was like, okay, I just need to, I just need to tell these guys who, who are at my church, like, what this guy thinks about me, and uh, I remember sharing it with them, and uh, I'll never forget, um, JD, who's one of the pastors there, and was like a, a mentor to me. He kind of heard everything. And he took me in this office, and he was like, we know you. We know everything about you, um, which when you plant a church, you get assessed, and you just have like an ungodly amount of knowledge known about every intimate aspect of your life. So that's why they knew that. Um, we know what's good about you. We know what's bad about you. We know where you're strong. We know where you're weak. And uh, we believe in you. And um, I just remember that being like a sort of like a watershed moment in my life. And I think it's continued to be as well because, I mean, there's been plenty of people in this journey who hate my guts or, uh, you know, think I'm not cut out to do this. And, and I just kind of return to that moment again and again where, like, here's this person that I trust, who knows everything about me and is still behind me and still wants to use me. And I know for a lot of you, like, you're probably, in a lot of ways, very envious of a moment like that. Um, you know, like, you haven't been able to experience something like that before. But, like, my point in all this is, like, you've actually experienced something better than that. Like, that is what God is saying to you in the gospel, like, he's saying to you, like, I know you. Like, I know who you really are. I know what you've done. I know what you think. I know the disparity between what you project and who you really are. I know you don't really like those bands. I know you don't really like independent French films. Like, you love Michael Bay movies. Like, you're way lamer than you let other people in on. He sees every aspect of who we are. dies for us to heal us. He resurrects for us to change us. And by the power of his spirit, he enables us to do abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. And so um, that is your experience if you're in Christ. It can be yours like if you want to believe and follow Jesus as well. And um, that's what it is that God has done for you in the gospel. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much uh, for who it is that you are and what it is that you've done for us. And um, I thank you for just six years of existence as a church. Um, I thank you for the many men and women in this room uh, who were here before, who will be here at our next gathering as well, uh, that compose this church. And, and yeah, um, I don't know. 
it, it's easy to like maybe make it seem like it's false humility to say like this truly is uh, a work of you and that's the reality. Uh, we are not uniquely gifted or talented. You are uniquely good and you have a zeal for your fame and um, it has spread into this neighborhood and we thank you for that. I pray by the power of your spirit uh, you would kill any self-righteousness within us in the same way that you did for Peter. Uh, it might hurt, but it's the type of hurt that we need. I pray that you would help us see the bankruptcy of the things that we think will save us. And God, let us return to you as the exclusive hope for salvation. And not only that, but the exclusive hope to empower us to do exactly what it is that you've called us to do. Let us respond now appropriately. And uh, we just ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.